So, Mr. Dingus, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to talk about the James Bond 007 role-playing Her Majesty's Secret Service game from 1983. Oh my god, I'm so excited to talk about this game. Welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast, everybody. I'm Brandon at Way of Brandalore. And I am Josh at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. And we would like this episode to be reviewed as shaken, comma, not stirred. Hopefully, once you've heard everything we have to say about this James Bond RPG from the 70s, uh, you will only you will only feel stirred and not shaken, unlike the delicious martinis. How are you doing this week, Josh? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Busy, busy. But that's standard fare. How about you? I'm doing fine. Uh, probably about the same. I've been looking forward to this this evening, though. Uh, but before we jump into uh, our licenses to kill here, uh, there's a, just a couple of news items we wanted to chat about. Uh, this stuff just rolled out maybe like the day or two before we recorded. And we know, you know, it's probably been a couple weeks at this point. So it's technically kind of oldish news, but not everybody follows this stuff. Uh, but the first thing we wanted to touch base on is Wizards of the Coast. Uh, in their latest errata that's come out, are doing some rebooting and retconning of things. Yeah, I think the one that excited me the most is to have the concept of all drow are evil is removed from their stat blocks and their uh, character. Like when you're trying to do a playable character race, it's removed from that as well. And it now says that the cult of Lolth is evil and that there are drow down there in the Underdark who are like, no, we have to stop them. Yeah, and this is part and parcel of a lot of other stuff. Like, they eliminated from all, like, not just the drow, but other races too, like, inborn uh, alignments. So certain, you know, dwarfs aren't usually, aren't always something. Elves aren't always something. It's more of a role-playing, personality-based thing as they continue to take little steps forward to minimize or eliminate insensitive portrayals and stereotyping that they've really been called to task on in the last year and a half. You know, I think the first big one in that was the um, Vistani in Curse of Strahd, where they changed a what had been a problematic portrayal since like 1983, uh, finally in 2020 decided that that wasn't acceptable anymore you got to appreciate progress i guess but i've said before that they knew it was bad when they were doing it they knew it was unacceptable but they waited until people's voices got loud enough that they couldn't ignore it anymore because they were happy to ignore it well and in spite of all of the changes they are currently making they are still selling with just a little disclaimer at the front of it about like oh well this was these were the times we were in all of their, I believe they're called Oriental Adventures, which yeah. is just super great, you know? Just, oh my gosh. Yeah. And that kind of leads into a second thing that <laughs> I wanted to talk about, and that is <laughs> Ernie Gygax's cluster of a company, um, you know, that is being, you know, called New TSR. Uh, how, like, how familiar are you with this whole affair? I am very familiar with this whole affair. It's basically Ernie Gygax laid claim to the TSR copyright, managed to make enough of a stir that the people who previously had TSR were like, you know what? We're going to just 
go buy something else because we really don't want to be affiliated with this garbage yeah that was the wildest thing when i read that um the, they were able to get the trademark but then there was somebody else who was also operating under tsr and apparently for a little bit they were trying to work together but then ernie gygax i guess it was earlier this year it was probably about six seven months ago um said some things uh about how D is too woke these days and it's just straying from the founding principles of his father, Gary Gygax, and everybody started tuning him out kind of at that point, except for the people he was speaking directly to in a not so subtle dog whistle. Yeah, that yeah. that whole situation, like a lot of his stances on things, a lot of his opinions, deeply, deeply problematic individual. But uh, yeah, after that, Gary, Gary or not Gary, but uh, Ernie Gygax primer there. Um, the, the key thing, uh, going on now is his new TSR company sued Wizards of the Coast and <laughs> it was like on its face. It just looked like a frivolous lawsuit. Um, but they were suing because they wanted, they were trying to get the rights to like the TSR wordmark and design star frontiers, Blackmore, um, the tsr wizard logo claiming that uh it had actually been abandoned uh and uh, wizards of the coast hadn't been using it even though they'd been publishing star frontiers like relatively recently and that was even in the response from the wizards of the coast lawyer to the lawsuit uh just boil everything away it's like hey you know we've actually been using this so i don't know how you can say that like this is yours and uh, new TSR ended up withdrawing the lawsuit, but they maintained that they intend to refile, which, you know, anytime somebody is sort of forced through embarrassment or lack of standing or anything to withdraw a lawsuit, they always claim that they're going to refile it as a way to save face. So I think it'll be really interesting this time next year to see if they actually did something about that. There are three things that fascinate me about this whole the whole lawsuit and then the refiling claim. The first is that uh, in the court case, it came out that on their Facebook page, the new TSR was already talking about how Star Frontiers was going to be one of their next projects, even though they hadn't yet even begun to secure the copyright. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. And then the second thing was that the filing got withdrawn, I think it was two days after it was posted in the first place. <laughs> And finally, the refile is going to be in Washington State. <laughs> wasn't, yeah, the first one was filed in North Carolina. Yeah, which I'm like, why did you file that in North Carolina if you were going to try to file it? Like, it's almost like they goofed up all yeah. the paperwork in the first place. Just reading through it and uh, obligatory, I am not a lawyer. Um, the t new TSR, TSR LLC, uh, they're authorized in Wisconsin and North Carolina, and they filed in North Carolina. I'm wondering if just because they thought that would be a more favorable legal environment for it. Well, or possibly trying to be like, yeah, wizards lawyers will never come down here to meet us in. Co oh, no. <laughs> oh, they've already bought the tickets, you say. They've got uh, the, they've got the money to meet you wherever they want to. Um, Wizards will meet you in another country on the other side of the planet if they need to. <laughs> they claimed that uh, like the, the lawsuit uh, 
alleges or not the lawsuit. I want to be precise since we're talking about legal actions. They have an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign to raise money for these lawsuits. Oh, God. Yeah. And they're alleging that um, they are being wrongfully bullied and that Watsi is publicly libeling and slandering them. Uh, it's some real wild stuff here. It's it's like shoot for the moon legal strategy stuff. I, I don't know what they're trying to do here. Other than make themselves look good to a, a, a ever smaller section of the role playing game community. Quite frankly, a legal action like this does not strike me as honest and forthright. It strikes me as the kind of thing that you do because news publications will be like, holy crap, you're doing what? Yeah, because I'll and be then... honest. I'll be honest. Before I saw this uh, the other day, I like I hadn't like forgotten about the new TSR or Ernie Gygax, but it certainly was not at the forefront of my mind anymore. It's one of those things that like I might see a passing reference to it and be like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. I mean, if I see a piece of trash in the alleyway and I can't clean it up, like I'm no, I'm only going to pay attention to it for so long, you know? Yeah. Oh, and to tie this back to what we were talking about before with um, Wizards of the Coast's um, legacy disclaimer, one of the things uh, that new TSR was demanding as part of the legal action was the elimination of the legacy disclaimer. Uh, presumably because it is denigrating some of the work that these guys are trying to lay their claim to. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. I yeah. don't know why you would do something like this. Yeah. Oh, let me clarify this. This is That was not part of the lawsuit. They said in addition to the lawsuit, they would seek to have Wizards of the Coast Legacy Disclaimer removed from the old uh, Dungeons & Dragons publications, which is nonsense. And I got all of this information, you know, I... I am a former journalist, and as such, I didn't do any original reporting on this. Uh, I got all my information on this and the other thing from uh, belloflostsouls.net, which uh, tends to be a pretty good resource for tabletop role-playing news. Yeah, that's where I read the article, and then I want to say I saw a couple of like opinion piece comments on Twitter to that effect. Yeah, yeah. All the, all the opinion piece comments on Twitter are largely this. I would say 99% of them are largely the same, and they describe Ernie Gygax in an unflattering way. <laughs> Which I think is fair. Yeah, but we'll put, we'll put <laughs> links to the, these stories in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. Ah, so having gotten that business out of the way, are you ready to take on some much more serious business of espionage and assassinations? Global intrigue people of interest powerful people in powerful positions mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah so i can't remember how i stumbled on this but i was just thinking about what bizarre licensed uh role-playing games were out there that maybe i didn't know anything about and i was one and a half when this was released so that's why i didn't know about it so i stumbled onto the bond role-playing game uh, just poking around looking for something interesting that I hadn't seen before so I could, you know, learn about it. And it was released in 1983. I think it was published through like 1989. Yeah, 1989, 1987, something like that. But it was from Victory Games. There's the basic set for it. And then it has a whole bunch of expansions and adventures, essentially, that are based on Bond movies and stuff like that. Um, it puts you it's kind of weird uh this this is the big thing that i took away from it as i was reading about it that was just so weird 
is it uses the plots from Bond movies. And it's I think it's ex explicitly using the movie plots rather than Ian Fleming's novel plots because they're two different things. Like if you watch Moonraker and read Moonraker, you're like those are were entirely two different stories. Like there was no <laughs> commonality among any of that. Uh, but it will put you sort of in the storyline of one of the films, but then it changes something. So it's not 100% predictable, which I think is a really interesting way of handling a licensed property where some of the appeal drawing people into playing it is, oh, I remember this movie. I really enjoyed this. Because otherwise you're just kind of making a generic spy adventure, albeit with probably the most valuable spy IP there, there is or ever was. I mean, I don't know. Austin Powers is pretty big. Shagadelic. <laughs> um, but like, for example, Gold in Goldfinger, Goldfinger's trying to break into Fort Knox. In the Goldfinger uh, adventure for the James Bond 007 RPG, it's like a gold mine rather than Fort Knox. So it changes it up a little bit. It makes it interesting. You can play as actual people from the movies. You can be Felix Leiter. You can be Bond. You can be Anya Amasova, who was Triple uh, X from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I actually love that movie and did not realize her full name until I read this and had to be like, who is that? <laughs> and I looked it up. Um, <laughs> and, but you can also create your own original character. Uh, and there are like three ranks. You start out as a rookie and you can go up to agent and then you can make your way up to double O agent. And it's all very numerically complicated. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. And I'll post uh, a picture of the character sheet in the show notes, too. But it is very complex looking. And I've, I've got some opinions about it that we'll get into. So how much of this did you have a chance to really like read about and learn about? So I didn't I didn't get to spend any time looking at the books themselves, um, in part because I couldn't find a moderately reputable source to mm -hmm. look at them from. Uh, and time's been kind of short. I did look at kind of everything surrounding the books. Mm -hmm. So I learned I learned some interesting stuff. Uh, like if you look at the cover art for all of these modules, you'll notice that they kind of look like movie bonds but they don't look distinctly like any of the movie bonds and i feel like it's it's kind of funny to see that done that long ago because i feel like they do the same thing nowadays with like the spider-man insomniac game mm -hmm. where it's like he's not really andrew garfield or toby Maguire or tom holland or any of those people he's kind of distinct from them well, sort of looking like all of them. He's a melange. A little bit, yeah. And so this is like a, a melange. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> An espionage. Uh, <laughs> I thought that the, like, that the um, generic Bond looked a lot like the George Lazenby Bond. I'm inclined to agree, but he looks he looks just slightly different. So it's almost like, you know, you take George Lazenby and you're like, can I copy your homework? And it's like, yeah, but make it look like you didn't copy it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Jorge Lazenby. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I imagine a lot of that had to do with licensing issues because you put Sean Connery's face in something 
you got to pay Sean Connery money. Uh, you put uh, Roger Moore's face in something, you got to pay Roger Moore money. However, I'm pretty confident there's line art of Roger Moore in this, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Well, I might as well just talk about it now. There's some nice line art in there of Bond being attacked by two guys, one of whom looks like Uncle Fester from the Adams Family, and the other of whom looks like Edgar Allan Poe, and they're attacking Bond with a bottle that they broke over a table, so it's like a bar fight. But it's very clearly Roger Moore. I'll put that picture in the show notes, too. Uh, and I don't know how they were able to get it that close to Roger Moore without paying him money. I mean, I again, I think they cheated it just enough. Mm-hmm. I think also part of the reason for doing it that way is that you then don't have it tied to a specific actor. Mm-hmm. So when you are making modules that span generations of different bonds, you don't have to be like, oh, well, this is a different era of bond that we are representing here. I would love it if it was like, one of the Batman Arkham games where you could take different eras of Batman and put them in there where you could have like Adam West Batman in Arkham City or something like that. You could have Daniel Craig fighting Goldfinger or something. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a tabletop RPG. You can do that. Bond is a playable character. This is a dream you could be living. It's just hilarious to me that they give like, obviously, you could create Bond if you wanted to. You could do almost anything and just say, this is Bond. But just the idea of having Bond available as a pre-generated character. It's like, well, who are you going to play? I'm going to be James Bond because he's the best. I think my favorite part of that is picturing someone sitting down and being like, I was going to play Bond. And it's like, Ugh, what? can't you do something a little bit less like vanilla than just playing Bond? Like it's the Bond TTRPG. Yeah. You could be any double O agent. Or, or <laughs> you could play... Uh, into the Bondiverse, and everybody could be playing a different James Bond and just tweak the stats accordingly. So you could have Daniel Craig teaming up with Pierce Brosnan and teaming up with Timothy Dalton, teaming up with Roger Moore. I'm not going to lie. All of those Bonds combined would be a pretty effective team. Though I Are also they like think... Captain Planet? They merge together to form like an <laughs> Ultra Bond? <laughs> they're, they're very tightly bonded. It's an unbreakable yeah. bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's such a good bond. Now, more what I was thinking was like, I'm picturing all of the different people, like all of the different versions of James Bond that have existed trying to work together and just absolutely driving each other bananas. It would be all I'll tell you can watch that. It's called any Doctor Who crossover special. (laughs) Those exist. And some of them even actually have Timothy Dalton in them. I have seen a couple of the Doctor Who crossover specials and they were I will I will leave it at something else. They were something else. That's a good way to put it. That's a very kind and charitable way to put it. For that storied <laughs> and revered science fiction franchise. Talking a little yeah. bit about the a little bit more about the licensing issues on this is Bond aficionados are probably pretty familiar with this, but the problem with being able to use Spectre you know, the criminal organization against whom Bond fights, uh, you know, under the direction of uh, Blofeld. Uh, It was tied up. I think it was because of where the idea came from. Uh, It was tied up for a long time. And that's why they had to wait to make the Daniel Craig Spectre movie until when they made it, because I think they wanted to make that earlier. But the rights were still in question. So this is back in 1983. Rights most definitely in question at this point. So they had to come up with an alternative to Spectre. And they called it Tarot, T-A-R-O. 
and they have a little allusion to what's going on. Uh, there's like a little paragraph where they introduce tarot and it's like due to some due to some intellectual property issues, we can't use the actual organization that Bond fights against. But we hope you get what we're saying, basically. <laughs> and here's tarot. Oh, my God. I I knew that there was licensing issues with uh, Spectre that made them go tarot, which I thought was pretty funny in of itself. I also knew and I didn't realize this. But Blofeld is also specifically licensed. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't use even like changing the name of the organization. They couldn't use Blofeld either, mm -hmm. which I didn't know you could just. I mean, it makes sense thinking about it. But in the moment, I was like, wait, you can just license some dude. Yeah. And then I was like, well, he's the he's the big villain. I guess that makes sense. It's not like you're licensing like henchman number 24 like oh you can't have a blonde guy in a yellow jumpsuit wearing a white construction hat yeah. we licensed that like ownership and usage rights are really weird with writing like my favorite example of this is um from star trek as most of the references i make are but the character of tom paris in voyager was actually originally meant to be nicholas lacarno from the episode of uh star trek the next generation the first duty where the same actor played the same kind of character, like a rogue ne'er-do-well who gets uh, kind of cashiered from the service. And the original plan was to bring Locarno back for Voyager, but they realized that the writer of that TNG episode wasn't like a staff writer. It was a freelancer. So every time if Nick Locarno was on Voyager that he appeared, he, they would have to pay that writer. So they're like, screw you guys. I'm going home. Uh, and they put a piece of masking tape over the name Nick Lacarno and got a Sharpie out and wrote Tom Paris. Find, replace all. I think there's actually in one episode of Voyager a picture, a, a, a picture of Paris, like when he was in the Academy or something. And it's actually a still from that episode of Next Generation of Nick Lacarno. <laughs> but yeah, that That's kind, of stuff, kind of amazing. That, that stuff could get really weird. So I'm not at all surprised that there was some especially with the way the bond rights have been negotiated and sold and everything over the last, you know, at this point, I guess, probably 30 or 40 years back in the eighties that there's something hung up there somewhere, making it not like super clean to be able to do something like that. No. And it makes sense. Like I imagine Ian Fleming when he was still around was fairly careful about who got the rights to the largest book series he had ever written. Yeah. You know, I would be. I don't blame him. Yeah. So talking a little bit about the mechanics of the game, it uh, it operates on a percentile system. I think the only two dice that the game uses are D10s and D6s, if I remember right. But, oh, wow. But essentially, you know, you give yourself, you know, a percentage of ability in something and then you have to roll for it. And the further away you are from the number, the more successful or the more failure-tastic you are um and it's really interesting because you start reading about the mechanics and how they do the storytelling and chase scenes and stuff like that and you start to realize that it's a very sort of cinematic storytelling feel almost like it, it's trying to reach for something kind of like more modern like fate it very much feels like how fate would want to tell us a, a spy story and it's just interesting how 
almost like it was before its time and really looking forward to what role-playing games could be because it wasn't trying to be Dungeons and Dragons. It was trying to be something different. Uh, and it really does its best in that sort of 1980s way of capturing the excitement of a car chase or a helicopter chase. I'm not going to really get into the all the chase rules and everything like that because there this is a 162-page <laughs> source book and it is the height of 80s source books where it's like two columns pretty much text and that's it there are some tables <laughs> in it and everything um when you're doing your percentile rolls and stuff you have to um like multiply your percentage number to get your result and all the sheets like they're i think it's on all the character sheets have a multiplication table like a literal matrix that you can use to multiply numbers really quick because i guess they didn't trust people to know how to do it in their heads back then well and it's not like everybody had a calculator in their pocket at all times yeah so remember how popular the calculator watch was back then well you can't remember because you weren't there but i was and i remember how popular the calculator (laughs) watch was I am aware of how popular the calculator watch was. That sort of information transcends time. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I was going to say regarding like the degrees of success in cinematic storytelling, I it almost makes you wonder if the people who came up with systems like Genesis or Fate, uh, how much they were inspired by systems like this mm-hmm. that they had already seen in play and been like, oh, you know what? Like, what if we did that? But we changed this and we did this other thing. Like, I realize people can come up with ideas completely independent of reading something like this, but so often we are inspired by the things around us and the things that we experience ourselves. I wouldn't be surprised at all to find that some of the people behind those systems were like, oh my God, I love the James Bond RPG. Yeah. No, if this is like, <laughs> if if this is like the Mark One Iron Man armor, then something like Fate would probably be like the Mark 42 or something just an, a, yeah. like another iteration on it that refines it and makes it better because yeah, this, exactly there's still a lot of math and a lot of dice and a lot of parsing and stuff like that in this but at the same time there's freedom for players and the gm to narratively dictate things in a cinematic fashion uh and i think fate just takes it a few steps further removing a lot of the distractions of the math uh, simplifying the dice, you know, <laughs> simplifying the dice to something with a plus, a minus, or a blank, and then roll those and figure it out. Uh, and it just makes it a bit more of an elegant system. But this is definitely the building blocks upon which something like that was based. It's just kind of, again, it's just very weird how forward thinking this feels with the benefit of being able to look back on it. Oh, absolutely. And I, I suspect that the creators of it were like, yeah, let's do something different. Let's do something weird. Let's get creative with it because we're not doing D&D. That's not our thing. Mm-hmm. Another just couple of things that I want to just tick off that I really liked is they really want you to make flawed characters. This is not certainly not unique to the Bond game, but it's got a character creation pool for with points. And you can give yourself more points by taking on weaknesses. Uh, Again, very common thing, but I really like how they pushed it in this one. So you're not creating just a a spy Superman. You can create a spy that's got weird phobias, addicted to gambling or drugs or alcohol, is afraid of ghosts, is a sadist, 
all kinds of different things. There's a big list in the book, but you know, surely you could come up with anything you wanted and work with your GM to help assign a numerical value to that. God, I just love the idea of the James Bond-esque double O agent arrives at the secret lair and the like supervillain is like, We've been expecting you, Mr. Bond. And he's like, Oh yeah? Like I'll be up there in a minute to show you a thing or two, and the villain's like Perhaps you will, but only if you can navigate my gauntlet of haunted dolls. <laughs> yes, we know Bond is an agoraphobic. I will agree <laughs> to meet him, but only in the middle of the vast Arizona desert. <laughs> How does this open sky make you feel, Mr. Bond? Like, I love the concept of that so much. That'd be so much fun to play. Mm -hmm. You could run just a whole game of flawed um, characters. And, you know, I'm not saying people who have a phobia is a flaw. Um, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just playing against archetype for this kind of character. Yeah. Well, having having characters that have weaknesses, having characters that aren't good at everything. I think it's more fun to play a game like that. Mm -hmm. Let's be real. A Bond who's a terrible marksman. <laughs> you know, the more I think about this, the more I think the only real way to play this game would be to play everybody as James Bond, but play it as the Bond multiverse, where everybody's a Bond where something different happened in their life, or this one's good at this. This Bond is actually an accountant. This Bond has narcolepsy. This Bond is from a dimension so different that he actually breathes water. Ooh. Now we're getting into like the Citadel of Bonds and Rick and Morty and, and James Bond. <laughs> the name's Pond. James Pond. Very good. You get a slow clap for me on that one. <laughs> Other things I like about this is it's got like two or three pages on seduction and the game encourages NPC seduction. You get appearance and fame rankings for a lot of that stuff. So this is the perfect game for players who love to play bards. Just go all over the place, seducing everybody. You're, you have a fame ranking where if you get too famous and well-known, it makes it harder to do your job as a spy. I think that's really cool. Uh, it's got pa several pages of rules and flavor for gambling. There are dice-oriented rules for poker. Uh, I think there's uh, rules for blackjack as well. And also rules for cheating, which rules for cheating sounds like a really good band name, I think. But then it's got lots and lots of flavor text for gambling destinations throughout the world. London, continental Europe, Monte Carlo, Las Vegas, the Caribbean. In the Las Vegas section, it says something like the refined gamblers of, uh, of England and France may find may find an unfamiliar setting in Las Vegas with boisterous Americans loudly screaming and hollering. I've only been in Vegas the once, but that was my experience. Mm -hmm. And then it's got pa like several pages on torture mechanics, which I didn't really like read too closely, but it sounds like in addition to physical damage, if your spy gets captured and tortured, they also have a table on kind of the psychological effects that that could have on them and how that might affect play later. So that actually sounds like a really solid like mechanic for encouraging role play. Yeah, that could be, that could be interesting to explore. I mean, obviously 
you and your players better trust each other a whole hell of a lot like yeah holy smokes you're gonna need to you're gonna need to have some veils and boundaries on that one for sure yeah yeah there, that was part of the reason that i didn't really read that one too closely because if i were playing the game i really wouldn't be worrying about that i'm long past that sort of edge lordy phase of my life where i want to play <laughs> gritty serious games all the time there's a time and a place for it and there's nothing wrong with liking that kind of thing i'm just sort of past it now no that's fair that's fair yeah but the game it just does a superb job reading through the book of capturing that whole spirit and experience of a bond adventure in a role-playing game form it tries too hard in some aspects like the chase mechanic which again i'm not going to get into but you could read it for yourself uh involves a little too much dice i think i think that could be handled a lot better if they lean more on the narrative it would flow a lot better um it tries to be too many things it tries to be a suave cinematic action adventure but at the same time it's gurps with with james bond there's just a lot of dice a lot of numbers there are so many stat blocks for vehicles uh for gadgets for uh enemies and everything and there's nothing wrong with that but it just there's just so much detail i guess is what i'm getting at and i guess that's sort of like a criticism with a lowercase c there's nothing wrong with that but you know gurps has an image gurps has a reputation and a player base of being what it is uh very very detailed for people who love the very very detailed and if you love that kind of level of detail in a spy game a hundred percent the 007 role-playing game is for you you will love it it's it's specialized gurps essentially so it's serps specialized universal role-playing system <laughs> uh but you know obviously i haven't had a chance to actually sit and play it my interpretation of this is just from reading the rules and knowing how games run and everything like that i think i would enjoy it if i played it i probably wouldn't pick it up and make it sort of a regular thing that I do, but it would be really fun to do this, I think for a one shot adventure or something. Oh yeah. I could absolutely see that. Like it, it could make for a very entertaining time without getting fully committed to the rule set and creating a whole campaign in that universe, mm -hmm. you know, run, run one scenario. Maybe that takes a few sessions to complete. Yeah. You you had told me before we started recording, you were like, hey, are you aware of some of the other games that Victory Games has put out? And you were about to tell me and you're like, no, 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 no. We got to save this for the podcast. We got to <laughs> save this for the podcast. Yes. So pulling up Victory Games because the, uh, the name seemed familiar to me because I don't know. I guess it's generic enough that I was like, I'm pretty sure I've heard of this company before. I looked through their catalog and I was like, actually, this is not familiar like at all. <laughs> so I guess I was wrong. I must have been thinking of someone else. But I did find some really fascinating and excellent gems in their catalog, which mostly, by the way, is a lot of war games. Like, good Lord, they have so many war games. They that have doesn't games surprise about... me at all. <laughs> they have games about Vietnam. They have games about the Korean War. They've got, like... They've got so many games where it's like, oh, we're going to do this specific era of combat in a theater of war. And it's like, 
Cool. And I, I, I'm assuming there was a big market for that at the time y'all were producing it. Totally groovy. Not really my shtick. Oh, yeah. But the war I've... games, like the tabletop wargaming market used to be huge. Like there was so much more than just like Warhammer, which feels like is if you're going to get into tabletop wargaming nowadays, you're going to be playing Warhammer. But there was so much of it. I mean, TSR grew out of wargaming. So that doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me that this company of all companies focused on that, given some of the like some of my criticisms for the way some of the mechanics work in this bond game uh, with all the tables and dice and everything like that. It does feel very wargamey. You know, now that you give me that context for it, it, it makes a lot more sense. It, it's almost like if you mashed up fate in a war game. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Like. So those those I would say are their very uh, what I would call their boring other options. <laughs> they have a few things in here, which I was like, I'm sorry, go on. They have a game called Look at the Schmuck on That Camel. I don't like where this is going already. <laughs> it is apparently... I haven't done a whole lot of research on this because I literally saw it on the Board Game Geek website and I was like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, it is a game of over 100 Yiddishisms with 400 plus definitions, give or take a little, where participants are asked to logically determine whether a Yiddish word is defined correctly. What? Right? That is not what I was expecting at all when you started talking. <laughs> That's so bizarre. <laughs> oh, oh my God. So here's the thing, Brandon. It gets weirder. Okay, hit me. They have a Playboy Bunny game. <laughs> it does get weirder. Called Playboy, the game of elegant lifestyles. Oh my God. It is the Victory Games take on the Parker Brothers classic game, Careers. Oh God. Players move around a board aspiring to achieve the targets they set themselves at the beginning of the game. No. The big difference is the players do not want to accumulate fame and happiness. Rather, they must buy the best cars, hook up with the prettiest women, and in general, obtain the best possessions that they can. This is awful. <laughs> it's the game of they, shallow life. Yeah, it really, really is. I was like... I was like, why would you? I, at first, I was like, why would you have a game about Playboy? And then I was like, oh, they mean like international Playboy, like the generic Playboy, generic Playboy term. But the thing is, they licensed the Playboy bunny image for this game. Well, of course they did, because that's a way to sell more. Right. Now, in that vein, they do have two games. One called Sex Quest and the other called Sexual Q&A, uh, <laughs> neither of which I am brave enough to open. But for those of you who are, please go explore. And then I think, where is it? Where is it? Here it is. The final one I wanted to mention, because it's easily the one that is the most like I was like, wait, I'm sorry. You made a game out of that. The game of good cooking. What? Be the first to prepare a week's meals in this amusing and delectable game. 
stop at the bank to get your shopping money, stroll through the supermarket, and select menus. Visit the shopping mall to buy a microwave oven or food processor to speed meal preparation. When you've assembled a complete meal, main course, side dish, and appetizer or dessert, hurry to the kitchen. There's no time to lose. The other players are racing around the board to complete their meals too. I mean, okay. Tell me you don't want to play that right now. I mean, I guess if I had it in front of me, I would want to play it. I'm not going to expend a lot of effort <laughs> to find a copy of that anywhere. I have no idea. At first, no I thought you were where... ta- at first, I thought you were talking about like a role-playing game. I was like, that doesn't sound fun at all. And then I, it slowly <laughs> dawned on me that it was a board game. Yeah, no, I think I think most of these that I've talked about are all board games, but just like they were out there creating these things in like the late 70s, early 80s, which I'm like, get get it. Like, I hope y'all did reasonably well for yourselves outside of the wargaming market, because some of these things are so bananas. It just brings me so much joy. I wonder how they ended up getting the job to put the Bond game together. Well, that's, as I understand it, one of their earlier pieces of work. Really? I would think that's something that you need a body of work to show so you can actually like land that contract. Well, the thing is, they've got games as recently as 92. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me double check here. I mean, that's only nine years after this came out, so that doesn't sound crazy. Uh, the oldest I'm seeing of their games is 83. So, yeah, I mean, it might have been a thing where they approached the Fleming estate or whoever happened to have the rights at the time and be like, hey, I think we could all make some money on this. It's also possible that they were like just starting to make a name for themselves with something a little more indie Mm -hmm. and doesn't show up in their board game geek listing specifically because it was something that they published well before they had like trademarks and copyrights and things like that in place. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's really interesting. I I love stuff like this where it's like, you made a board game out of what? <laughs> I've got to look at some of those. That just that all sounds crazy. I'm very interested. It's amazing. I am about it. Tying it back to uh, the topic for just a second. What uh, what's your favorite Bond movie, Josh? I had to think about this a lot. I think just for what it is. My favorite Bond movie is probably Goldeneye, which I know is a little controversial for a few folks because it doesn't lean fully into the corny side of Bond, Mm -hmm. where it's like ridiculous over the top villains with ridiculous over the top plans. But it's pretty close, while simultaneously not leaning all the way into the current Bond, which is a lot more like uh, the gritty realism of racing cars through the european countryside parkouring across buildings and through walls yeah i mean i love daniel craig is my favorite bond just from not necessarily how bond does things but from how daniel craig portrays him doing things i guess how so like i the scenes where daniel craig is like interacting with a villain or interacting with you know a person of interest for him or someone like that like i love so much the energy that he brings to those scenes where it's kind of like yeah i mean i am i am here right now like we may as well do this let's do this okay yeah absolutely like it's 
there's so often where he's like, uh, why, why do you have a giant ice sculpture out in the middle of the Antarctic? Why is this a hotel for you? Why, why any of this? None of it makes sense. He's the doc. He's the Dr. McCoy of Bond movies. Yeah. And I love that. And I think, I think that's part of between that and the like, oh, it's gritty realism action scenes with parkour. Like, I think that's why so many people are like, oh, Daniel Craig is not my favorite Bond. But I love, I love specifically the interactions he has with folks. Mm -hmm. But GoldenEye, I think, is that like beautiful blend of both worlds where it's like, that someone's going to incinerate whole countries with a giant laser from space. And how is Bond going to stop them? With clicker pen bombs. <laughs> like, Who's your favorite Bond villain? Oh, uh, I think my favorite Bond villain is Dr. No, because he was the one that had the huge fluffy white cat, right? I believe so. It was either him or Blofeld. And the scar on the eye. Was that, Dan, was that Blofeld? Oh, no. No, Blofeld had the scar on the eye. You're thinking of Blofeld. I am thinking of Blofeld. Okay, Blofeld then. Yeah. Uh, just like. <laughs> Change my answer. Sorry. Sorry. Well, it's it's difficult. I haven't watched Bond films in quite some time. Mm -hmm. In part because I was, at the time, trying to determine how I felt about them as I became a more socially and publicly aware person of mm -hmm. The, some of the more problematic aspects of James Bond films. Uh, yeah, you could probably say that Dr. No is a problematic aspect of James Bond films. Yeah. No, I was I was trying to recall the name of the gentleman with the eye scar and the big fluffy white cat. And if that's uh, that's Blofeld, then that's who I got. Yeah, that's Blofeld, because that was the basis for Dr. Evil and Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. So yes, Blofeld, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Yeah, he's he is a beautiful caricature of evil, and th the fact that so many things have been like, oh yeah, that's that's going to be our archetype. Like we're going to use that character as the base platform for what we're building. Mm -hmm. I think gives credit to what an excellent character he is. I like Donald Pleasance as Blofeld because Blofeld's been played by like a half a dozen people, but Donald Pleasance is my favorite Blofeld actor. I would need to I honestly I need to watch more James Bonds again because I've seen most of them mm -hmm. and I own the entire collection in a huge box set. So maybe maybe you and I need to do a James Bond night or something. Yeah, I'll tell you, my favorite is uh, yeah. hands down The Spy Who Loved Me. It is my absolute favorite. It's also my favorite Bond. Roger Moore is my favorite Bond, which is not a popular answer because most people, if they're going for like a you know, pre Brosnan bond are going to Sean Connery. Sean Connery has got a lot of problems, a lot of problems with Sean Connery. Roger Moore has some too, but as James Bond, he was my favorite because he was able to, he was able to portray the seriousness and maturity of the character, especially his naval background uh, and this movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, is a really good example of that because he has to slip into his sort of Commander Bond role in certain points. But he had that effortless charm uh, that came across as more genuine and less condescending than Connery's Bond in a similar situation. Um, and also, this is really 
this is kind of when Bond started sort of going off the rails in terms of the caricatures of the gadgets and things like that. Spy Who Loved Me probably has one of the best Bond gadget slash vehicles, and it's the Lotus Esprit that turns into a submarine, uh, which is just fantastic. I love that. But it's got a guy stealing nuclear subs, trying to start Armageddon by having each of them fire nuclear missiles, one at Moscow, one at New York. It's got Bond teaming up with a KGB agent who, of course, he starts a relationship with. Um, It has M and the head of the KGB sort of becoming halfway buddies throughout the whole thing. Uh, There's an undersea lair with a megalomaniacal villain. It's got all the classic elements of just an off-the-rails spy movie. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. I love it so much. It was one of the ones that I grew up... I think this is part part of the reason that I enjoy it. When I was growing up in the mid-80s, like, these were... Like, this came out in 77. So it was on television by then. Same with Moonraker. That came out in 79. It was on television. I was watching that. Man with the Golden Gun. Um, Christopher Lee, Scaramanga. I was watching that. So I think that's why the Roger, the, these Roger Moore movies really resonate with me because they're the ones I grew up watching, like live and let die. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember watching that one time it was on over the air television while I was camping with family and we had my grandfather's motorhome and he had a TV in it and he had an aerial. So I remember we watched it then and seeing the guy blow up at the end because Bond like shot him full of the compressed air or whatever. That's an image that has stuck with me for like probably 35 years at this point. (laughs) But my favorite Bond villain, it's sort of a tie for me because I love Jaws because he has the best gimmick. He shows up twice. He has a redemption arc. So like when like, so you actually start rooting for Jaws at one point but also odd job because he has that awesome hat. And if you're playing the golden IN 64 game, there's always the no odd job rule because <laughs> nobody wants to be playing a game with somebody else playing odd job. I mean, I think that's fair when everyone else are playing the same size targets and someone is a target two thirds, the size of everyone else who yeah. moves at the same speed. Yeah. But I just love that hat. I love that hat. Oh, the hat is magical. Don't get me wrong. Did you ever watch James Bond Jr., the animated series from the 90s? I did not. I was aware of its existence, but it was... Yeah, that was before your time. Well, not not even that. It was that and young Indiana Jones were things that just did not appeal to me as an individual. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I would rather watch the franchises these are based on. James Bond Jr. came on at seven o'clock in the morning during the week when I was getting ready for school because I was in, I want to say, second grade or something when this was on. So I would watch it in the morning. I can't remember hardly a single thing about it except for the theme song, which if you've never heard the theme song, it's it's a banger of a kid's cartoon <laughs> theme with echoes of the James Bond theme. I'm going to put a link to the theme video in the show notes just because if you've never seen it or heard it it's absolutely worth it i'm gonna need to follow that link because even if i have it's been so long that it's not in my mind at all oh my god it once you get it in your head it's never gonna leave it's a huge earworm (laughs) so talking about the bond rpg one last time so where can you get it well therein lies the rub you can either get lucky 
and get a relatively inexpensive copy on eBay because, of course, it's long out of print. It's almost as old as I am. So it's it's very much out of print. Um, you know, there you know, you look hard enough for anything on the Internet, you'll be able to find it. But uh, I saw and I'll put some of these in the notes, too. I saw a couple of eBay listings for like complete sets of the basic game and all the adventures that were written for it. And, you know, for what it was, it was a pretty reasonable price for an out of print, essentially collector's item at this point. So that's good. There are a couple other options, too, if you don't want to do that. Tabletop Simulator has a complete James Bond 007 RPG on there. Uh, It looks very complicated, but it looks like it has all the materials and everything. Cannot vouch for, you know, the rights usage situation on here, but I'm looking at it right now. It's on Steam. It hasn't been taken down from Steam. It was posted in 2018. So who knows? But it's there. I mean, it does kind of make you wonder, are they really going like is Victory Games out there watching their copyrights this closely? I would be less worried about Victory Games and more about the Ian Fleming estate. That's fair. Or MGM. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, it's there. And then if you want to be super careful, there's also a clone of the James Bond RPG called Classified by Expeditious Retreat Press. And you can actually get that on DriveThruRPG for like 10 bucks in PDF form. I feel like that's the route that I would send people myself. Yeah. Like you if could, I had to pick one. Yeah. Just get that piece of masking tape, put it on the cover and write Bond on it. And you're good to go. <laughs> you're 100% good to go. If you're looking for some 1980s spy action that's trying to be fate before there was fate, classified is the way you want to go. Drive through RPG. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Trying to the title of the like core rulebook is something silly and way more complex than it needs to be. What? And for then classified? now I don't remember what it is. No, for the James Bond game. Oh, it's uh, enter the victory games world of James Bond 007 role playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service, the complete basic game, including an introductory adventure. Role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service, I think, is the actual official title of the of the source book. It's <laughs> like, how are you going to put that on like a magazine order catalog in so long? It was a more innocent time in the 80s. But uh, anyway, I didn't expect you to talk. I didn't expect you to die, but I did expect you to have a good time. Did you enjoy talking about the James Bond RPG, Josh? Oh, absolutely. And all of the many, many wonderful, weird things around it. All right. Well, we'll be back next time, folks, with a whole different thing to talk about. So until then, uh, thanks for tuning in to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. You know, please support us uh, with uh, subscriptions, telling a friend. Uh, there's also a Patreon floating around out there, patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. Join the Discord, bit.ly slash goblin discord. I am Brandon at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And I am Josh at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.